Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I always try in an interview, Barry, to uh, put myself in the other man's shoes, to try to find out what makes people tick. For example, nobody evil thinks they're evil. When I would interview people regarded as evil, I would try to get at them from their perception. Like someone asked me, what would you ask Osama bin Laden? Well, I wouldn't, the first question would not have been, why did you bomb 3,000 people on 9-11? My first question would have been, you grew up in one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia. Why'd you leave? Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. We have a great show today for you, legendary broadcaster Larry King. I tell you, this is one of the most inspiring interviews that I've ever done, and this guy isn't just on Mount Rushmore, he's standing on top of it when it comes to interviewing. And before I get started, I want to thank everybody for all the incredible kind messages and every kind of way, shape, or form that you've sent to me. It's been incredible. I'm so appreciative. And if you ever want to get a hold of me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Twitter or Instagram. And I will find you and I will answer your messages because you have been so kind. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Larry King, and I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to be very long. It's hard to condense an introduction of a legend like this. It's next to impossible. All right, Larry King was born in Brooklyn in 1933, and he's an American television and radio host, producer, and actor whose work has been recognized with accolades, including two Peabody's, and ten Cable Ace Awards. At an early age, he suffered a tragedy when his father died at 44 of a heart attack, which resulted in him, his mother, and the family being supported by welfare. 
A CBS staff announcer whom King met by chance suggested he go to Florida, which was a growing media market with openings for inexperienced broadcasters. So King went to Miami, and after initial setbacks, he got his first job in radio. The manager of a small station, WAHR, now WMBM, in Miami Beach, hired him to clean up and perform miscellaneous tasks. When one of their announcers quit, they put King on the air. His first broadcast was in 1957, when he worked as the disc jockey from 9 a.m. to noon. He also did two afternoon newscasts and a sports cast and was paid $55 a week. He started doing interviews on a mid-morning show for WIOD at Pumpernick's Restaurant in Miami Beach. He would interview whoever walked in. His first interview was with a waiter at the restaurant. Two days later, he interviewed singer Bobby Darren, who was doing a concert later that day, after he walked into the restaurant having heard King's radio show. Darren became King's first celebrity interview guest. His Miami radio show launched him to local stardom. The first American coast-to-coast concert tour of the Beatles brought the British invasion of rock and roll music in 1964 and brought King his first nationwide exposure. King followed along with the group, providing an intimate look at the cultural and music phenomenon for weeks with several behind-the-scenes interviews and commentary broadcasts. In 1978, King went national on a nightly mutual broadcast system coast-to-coast. It was broadcast live Monday through Friday from midnight to 5.30 a.m. Eastern, and King would interview a guest for the first 90 minutes, with callers asking questions that continued the interview for another 90 minutes. For its final year, the show was moved to afternoons and was eventually given comedian David Brenner, and radio affiliates were given the option of carrying the audio of King's new CNN evening television program from the Westwood One radio simulcast of the CNN show. There it began where he started Larry King Live on CNN in 1985, hosting a broad range of guests from controversial figures of UFO conspiracy theorists and alleged psychics to prominent politicians and leading figures in the entertainment industry. King was a workhorse. After he did the CNN show from 9 to 10, he would then travel to his mutual radio office to do his radio show when both shows were still airing. Additionally, King wrote a regular newspaper column in USA Today for almost 20 years. The final edition of Larry King Live aired December 16, 2010, after a quarter of a century. In March 2012, King co-founded Aura TV, a production company with Mexican business magnate Carlos Slim. And in 2013, Aura TV celebrated their 100th episode of Larry King Now!, One of his greatest political passions is the fight for global climate change reform, which he says is threatening humanity's existence and is a potentially catastrophic issue on the environment and our health. He continues to support many, many charities, including heart disease after being affected by a heart attack himself that almost took his own life. King remains a national treasure and has conducted more than 60 thousand interviews in his career. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, truly, one of the greatest honors that I've ever had doing this show. Please welcome my guest today, 
Larry King. I know you're thrilled. <laughs> I know I know what's going through. Your heart is going a little faster. You're sitting here in my sumptuous Beverly Hills home. But carry on. Do your best. I will. It's beautiful here. <laughs> I want to share something with you. This is very odd. I've studied you for so long, and I've watched you for so long. I have absolutely no nerves at all. And normally I have had nerves when I've interviewed people before who I really hadn't uh, met before. I'll tell you why you don't need nerves. It's your microphone. It's your podcast. It's your show. You're in control. I am at the mercy of you. Why should you be nervous? I should be nervous. Like my friend Herbie says, who wrote, You Can Negotiate Anything, as comes to mind. If you owe the bank $200,000 and it's due tomorrow and you don't have it, who should be nervous? You or the bank? <laughs> I've heard that there's very few guests that when they're on your show that you feel like it's not your show. Very, very rarely. You're always in control. Even when it seems like you're not in control, you're in control. For example, Don Rickles, the late Don Rickles, one of my oldest and dearest friends, he put me on the floor. He says hello and I'm laughing. But even though I'm laughing and I'm banging the desk and I'm out of control, I'm in control. In other words, it's always your base. It's always my base, no matter what. Who is the guest out of 60,000 interviews that always tried to wrestle control more? Professional guests don't try to wrestle control. Cosby was a great guest. I just interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the great guests of all time. They're so profound. I have never, Barry, I have, I, I guess this goes back to my childhood. I'm insatiably curious, insatiably curious. That's why I've been doing this 61 years. And I'm just as curious today as I was 61 years ago. Or back to when I was nine years old and I'd ask a bus driver, why do you want to drive a bus? I am just curious. And that curiosity comes through to the guest. So they know I care about them. And when they know I care and when they know I'm curious, you, you don't have many problems. You really don't. You have a lot of similarities to stand-up comedians. And I'll oh, well, I do stand-up. I did a tour a couple of years ago. I speak at conventions and I always tell stories. I never speak seriously. I just did last week the Young President's Organization had a riot. I tell, I love making people laugh. If I hadn't been an interviewer, I'd have been a stand-up. Absolutely. There's nothing like, nothing. Of all the things I do, the best time I have is when I'm doing stand-up. When you walk out on a cold stage, and they're there, and you know you're funny. You know you're funny. And if you deliver it right, you know you have good material because it's real stuff. I'm telling real stories. That moment when you come to the punchline of a joke or the punchline of a story, when you know they're going to laugh and then they laugh, 
so orgasmic that nothing like it. Cold stage, nothing like it. The world's best time is a stand-up comedian when you're successful and you got them going. You're having a better time than them. Buddy Hackett used to talk about the monitor. The monitor in a comedian's head when you walk out stage and you get them, but you're also saying, okay, I see that person talking over there with their boyfriend. I see the exit there. I see the doorman walking there. I see the person delivering the drink. Yeah, they, oh, it all comes in, but you try to get them. And when you get them, you feel much better. Buddy came on my show once and said, before I even asked a question, he said, did you hear about the guy with wooden legs that lived in an all wooden house? They had a fire. They saved the house, but the guy burned to the ground. <laughs> See, delivered well, that's Buddy. That's funny. You know, when you know what's funny, Lenny Bruce was a great friend of mine. And he used to do a lot of things about what's funny and what's not funny. What did he say was funny and not funny? Montana is funny. (laughs) (laughs) New York is not funny. New Jersey is funny. Atlanta is not funny. Milwaukee is funny. Chicago is not. Now, you can't even explain it, but it's... It's truth in its idiom. It is what it is. Swiss cheese is funny. American cheese is not. I don't know why. Because you could have said the reverse. Lenny used to do this on Jewish. What's Jewish and what's not, you know. Uh, Nebraska is not Jewish. Even if you're Jewish and you live in Nebraska, you're not Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the other reasons I see you as similarities as a stand-up comic is that comedians, they go on the road, sometimes they do three shows on a Saturday night. And sometimes the third show, they have more energy and they're better on the third show, or at least they're equal to the first show. And I think what's always been fascinating watching you, and if you don't mind me saying, you're like the Denzel Washington of talk show (laughs) hosts. There's not one frame where it seems like you take a moment off. I'm always in the moment. I, I, I can be dead tired. So whether I'm going on the air, like this morning I had to get up early. I was supposed to be in New York and I wasn't this week. So Neil deGrasse Tyson was scheduled for noon in New York. I had to be there at 9 this morning. It's 45 minutes away. Our studios had at breakfast. I got up earlier than usual. So when I got there, I'm dead tired. I'm really tired. When they were putting the makeup on, I was sleeping. Then I sit down. I seal Neil deGrasse Tyson by satellite. And the moment that light goes on, bang, bang, I'm right into it. It's the same if I'm standing on a stage and talking or addressing a group. Something kicks in. That red light on that camera, which I've been looking at for... A lot of years, seven decades, still energizes me. It still gets me going. Like I asked Milton Berle if he ever is going to retire, and he said, retire to what? <laughs> I will die on the air. I, I, I just know it. That's the way I'm going to go. I just, I'll be asking a question <laughs> and down. 
and and it'll make the news, you know. Page three. I asked Neil Tyson this morning if he's afraid to die. And he said he's only afraid to die if he feels he hasn't accomplished what he wanted to accomplish when he's dying. I, I'm afraid to die because I'm too curious. In other words, how the hell are the Dodgers going to do, right? I don't want to die before I find out how they're going to do. But then I don't want to die before the elections. Who's going to be elected? But then the Super Bowl. But then it's <laughs> next year's baseball and the National Hockey League and the NBA. And who's going to be the next president? I don't want to die. Because I like being around. I I was thinking for a while about being frozen. So I'd come back. So my wife said to me, well, you'll come back in 200 years. You won't know anybody. I said, I'll make new friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put up with it. I like living. I've been, I've had every known, look, I've had a heart attack, quintuple bypass surgery, prostate cancer, radiation, type 2 diabetes, and they caught lung cancer early. First stage, they took out 20% of a lung. My urologist was checking me the other day and he looked at all of my records from Cedar sinai and he said to me, if I showed this to someone, this person is dead. This, I'm looking at your medical records, you are not alive. So what keeps me going? Modern pharmaceuticals, I don't deny that. Modern pharmaceuticals have played a big part. And my love of life. I'm positive that's part of it because I love getting up in the morning. And no matter what is ever told to me, I never think it's the end. When they told me, you're having a heart attack, I didn't think I would die. When they told me that I had prostate cancer, I'll be all right. When they told me you got first stage lung cancer, I'll make it. So I have internal optimism. When's the last time you had serious internal pessimism? Oh, oh, internal pessimism, not a lot. Pessimism about what's going on, constant. I asked the great lawyer, Edward Bennett Williams, who is a great friend of mine, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He said, of course I'm a pessimist. I'm smart. (laughs) Uh, About the world, I'm a pessimist. I'm a pessimist about the future of America. I'm a pessimist about the presidency. Internal, health-wise, I'm optimistic. External, I, I don't have great hope. Do not have great hope. When's the last time you had great hope for our country? When Obama was elected, that was a great day for me. Great day for America. It was a great turn. Sadly, we've turned way back. Racism, which I think is a curse and a disease and makes no sense to me, is now more prevalent than before. I don't understand it. I've never under... Maybe I was where I grew up in Brooklyn. I don't don't understand it. It's like, for example, it's the color, it's the pigment of skin. Why the hell would that matter? 
if you're black and I'm white, what the hell would that, what, what do you care? Look at all, look at all the deaths, the civil war, the stupidity of racism, the moral stupidity, the intellectual stupidity, the economic stupidity. The South had to build four bathrooms in every building, extra plumbing, cost the money. Crazy, crazy. So I've never understood that. And when I still see it exist, drives me nuts. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You had an amazing interview that I think I'll, I'll always remember with a police officer that was paralyzed in yeah. a wheelchair. Sergeant McCall. That just blew me away and you talk about racism i don't know if you feel like telling the audience about well, that. sergeant mcdonald came on my show and he was in a wheelchair his beautiful wife was with him he had a four-year-old son he was paralyzed from the neck down so he has never touched his son his son touches his face uh Good-looking guy, and it's, I think he just passed away. But but then it was, it was 40 years ago. And I said, what happened? And he said, uh, there was a series of, of, of stolen cars, stolen bikes and cars, mostly bikes in Central Park. And so he was cruising in his patrol car with another, and he was the other guy was driving, and he saw this black kid with a brand new Schwinn, got out of his car, approached the kid, and the kid shot. He saw smoke go up, he saw pain, they gave him last rites. He pulled through, but he was paralyzed. When he was back in his wheelchair and okay to exist in society, his child was just born, he said he wanted to talk to the kid that shot him. Kid was 17. Why did he want to talk to him? He just wanted to know why he shot him. Why is why why? I just came over to talk to you. So I visited the kid. He said I visited the kid in prison, in jail. He wasn't yet tried. And uh, why'd you shoot me? And the kid said, "I'm an A student." 
my brother's a bad kid, and he left town. He, I'm, I'm holding a gun for him. He says, hold this gun for me. So I was holding it. I have a, I'm a grocery delivery boy after school, and I've been saving my money. I just bought this new Schwinn bike. New Schwinn bike. And you are the eighth or ninth cop to stop me that day to ask what I'm doing with that bike. So I want to ask you a question. Would you have stopped me if I were white? And the cop said I couldn't answer him honestly. And the cop realized that if I could not answer him honestly, then it's something in me. So he worked on this kid, wound up being a foster father to the kid, and the kid became a cop. And at the time, he was crying, I was crying. But those are those moments in time that are, you know, they're just Danny Kay. On my radio show years ago, I'm interviewing Danny Kay all night long. At three in the morning, this woman calls in and says, I, I never thought I'd ever talk to Danny Kay. I can't believe that I'm talking to Danny Kay. He said, and he said, why? And she said, my son was in the Navy. He was killed in Korea. And he was a big fan of yours, Danny. He loved you. He used to imitate you. We'd have relatives over you, all your shtick. And so he had in his footlocker, when they sent that stuff home to me, the only picture was of you. The picture of you, Danny, in my footlocker. So I framed that picture, and I put it next to a picture of him in his Navy uniform. And that's on my television set, the picture of you and the picture of him. And I dust both faces every day. And Danny starts till I cry, and the woman starts to cry. I start to cry, it's on the radio. And he says to her, what was his favorite song? And she said, Dina. And he sang it to her. And there's that moment, three in the morning, Danny came me, a woman on the phone, and he's singing, Dina, is there anyone fina in the state of Carola? moments and I've had moments like that in a career of 61 years I pinch myself every day Barry I pinch I swear to God uh, the last time I worked was for United Postal Service I was 21 and a half years old I was a helper on a truck UPS delivered all the packages for New York's department stores there were no planes, no. We had the brown truck and the brown uniform. First check I ever saw over $100 was from UPS. Had a bunch of odd jobs, but. $100 for how much? One week, two weeks? 40 hours. They, they were good paying, still are, I'm told. And that was a good job, wearing my little brown, you have to check out your uniform every day, and how do you look? So as you're delivering the packages, do you have any aspirations of oh, the yeah. entertainment business? My aspirations to be on the radio began when I was five years old. I used to listen to the radio and then run into the bathroom and imitate what I just heard. And now a tale well calculated to keep you in 
suspense. Oh, turn out your turn down your blinds, lock your door, <laughs> crawl under your couch, and turn your lights out, Arch Obler. Radio fascinated me. Theater of the mind. When I was a teenager, you could go visit quiz shows and other things in New York. I'd go and watch the announcers. I wanted to be an announcer. I wanted to be Bob and Ray. I wanted to be Red Barber. I wanted to do baseball. I never went to college. My father died when I was nine. I always wanted it, and one day on the street in New York, I met James Sermons, who's still alive, by the way, he's 100, who was the chief staff announcer at CBS. And someone introduced me, and I said, where, where should I break in? I think I want to be an announcer. He says, go to Miami because there's no unions, there's a lot of stations, and there's people on the way up, and sort of retired people who are enjoying themselves. I went down, knocked on doors, got a job, was a disc jockey for about a year, and then some restaurant, Pumpernicks, wanted a guy to host a radio show, and the rest is history. Now, that was a radio show from there, but you were interviewing waiters and Yeah, but then Bobby Darren walked in. After about a month, Bobby Darren. He was working across the street, he came in, and then suddenly that caught on. Jimmy Hoffa came in, Ed Sullivan, Comedians, people who were working the hotels, Rickles would come in dressed as a busboy. <laughs> I remember he would go past the fat lady and he said, You're ordering butter? What? <laughs> <laughs> I had so many adventures with Don and them, and I, I loved, loved comics, loved interviewing comics, had great times with comics. Mel Brooks put me away. I played the 2000 year old man, and then they. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Mel Brooks was on my radio show. And this is the truth. I said to him, wow, what a day. He said, yeah. I said, do you want to be the 2,000-year-old man, which is the funniest album ever made? He said, okay. I said, Mel, I said, Mr. 2000, we've just walked on the moon. What do you think of that? He goes, the moon? The moon is my favorite thing in the whole atmosphere, in the whole environment, in the whole universe. I love the moon. For 400 years, I love the moon. And then, one day, Bernie said, isn't the moon beautiful tonight? And I said, the moon? The moon is beautiful. I thought I had a cataract. <laughs> <laughs> now, think of where that humor comes from. I thought I had a cataract. <laughs> I interviewed him in 1964 at the New York World's Fair. And I said to him, what do you think of a fair? He goes, fair. <laughs> I said, fair? We got monorails, skyrockets. Were you at the first fair? <laughs> you, you know. The first fair, the whole world came, 197 people. <laughs> With the whole bottom, he says, not only that, the fair was held, there was no means of transportation. So the fair was held at the bottom of a ravine. In fact, that was one of the thrills of the fair. Watch him roll in. You had to roll in to watch it. And he says, and we, oh, we thought the burning bush was a ride. <laughs> people jumped on, you jumped off. I mean, that, that, and so I love, 
that kind of sense of humor. You know, when I was on the radio all those years, doing radio and television, I never got to see Seinfeld because I was on the same time he was on. So now, in the past year or two, I watched all the Seinfeld episodes. Can't believe how funny that was. Genius of Seinfeld and Larry David, the, the just genius to come up with involving plots about just nothing. I guess I, so I appreciate humor above all. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office and Everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. It's so effortless to watch you with Don Rickles for a half hour just losing your mind. Or with somebody like Robin Williams where you just... Oh, you just go with it. Then there's the other times where I observe you and I wonder what's going through your mind. Like I was interviewed, I remember with Seinfeld after the show ended. And I asked him, why did the, did the show drop off or something? And yeah, he got upset at you. I'd never seen the show. I'd seen Jerry's stand-up, but I'd never seen the television show. And later we went on uh, a late-night show together, and he said he was, you know, he, he got mad at me, but, but I did the B-movie, and I was Larry B. King, and worked <laughs> with him all day on that. He was so meticulous. Everything had to be just right, and that was a lot of fun to do. I loved working working with him. Rickles, This some, my wife opened for him in Vegas three times in Atlantic City. She's a singer. 
and he's so sweet. He was just so sweet and so genuine. He didn't have a mean bone in his body, but he had that ability to trigger something and do it so well. And I've seen him so much. You know, in Miami, I was in Miami once. I sat with Sidney Poitier, who I had dinner with here a little while ago. And Sidney Poitier sitting, I'm sitting at the same table. And he walks on stage and he says to Larry, you'll hang around with anything. <laughs> and he goes, Sidney, I don't know how to break this to you. I looked at the menu. No, no fried chicken. <laughs> no watermelon. What are you going to eat? And then turn around to the band. Is he coming up? <laughs> is he after me? My daughter's name is Kaya. It's a Jewish version of Chaim. The boy is Chaim. The girl is Chaya. We call her Kaya. She was born. Rickles called me up and said, is that a kid or a canoe? <laughs> he just, you know, those guys. And great comic, George Burns. I said, George, you're, you're 99. Did you ever get arthritis? He said, I was the first one to get it. <laughs> when you think of that routine that Rickles did then with Sidney Poitier and the audience with you. Could he do it now? Yes. Rickles could do anything because Rickles is Rickles. Still did it now. So he did it before he died. He was still, he's, because Rickles, because he did it to everyone, Arabs. Jews. You know, he took no prisoners, therefore all prisoners, therefore we're all in this. You know, he he said to me from the stage, Larry, I don't care, King, I don't care what name you use. You're in Germany in 1935. They see your nose. They're rounding you up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's genuinely, genuinely funny. Was there ever a comedian that the world thought was a genius, killing it all over, but for some reason you never felt that way when you interviewed them? I've generally had a good time with comics. Barry Gray had a very embarrassing time. I was a fan of Barry's. He had Harry Ritz coming on from the Ritz Brothers, and he keeps promoting it as the funniest man in the world, which I'm told Harry Ritz was. The f you're going to die, Harry Ritz. He doesn't do interviews. He's coming here tomorrow. Late an egg. Didn't say it now. So it's very hard to introduce someone as the funniest man in the world and then have him bomb. I, I didn't have that. One, because I wouldn't say the funniest man in the world. I would say my guest is Bill Cosby. If I have to tell you who he is, I don't have to tell you he's funny. The tragedy of Bill Cosby is how funny he was. The best two stand-ups, pure stand-ups, were Bill Cosby and Alan King. No one funnier than Alan King. No one funnier than Bill. Cosby could sit on that chair and hold you. So just, you know, you never know the other side of a person, you know, but Cosby is a tragedy. So you never feel like after an interview in the past 60 years where you go home and you sit in the fetal position on your couch and you say, I think there's something going on there with that person. No. 
I I I I I I interview them. I try to get the best out of them. Now, when someone has dark secrets that they are holding within, and you discover it later, it's a mass discovery for everyone, unless you saw them in action. You know, unless you're around. Now, people tell me they saw Bill Cosby treat people poorly. I wasn't there. I always try in an interview, Barry, to uh, put myself in the other man's shoes, to try to find out what makes people tick. For example, nobody evil thinks they're evil. Osama bin Laden didn't comb his hair in the morning and say, I'm a bad person. Hitler didn't say, I'm a bad person. They believed in themselves. So when I would interview people regarded as evil, I would try to get at them from their perception. Like someone asked me, what would you ask Osama bin Laden? Well, I wouldn't, the first question would not have been, why did you bomb 3,000 people on 9-11? My first question would have been, you grew up in one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia. Why'd you leave? Now, that's, that's a true question. It's a true concern. He probably hasn't thought about it in years. Makes him think about things. It also puts him a little on my side. He's expecting this, and I'm going with, why'd you leave? And I'm sincere, because I have no idea. I wouldn't have left. <laughs> it's so fascinating that you just said that to me, because I had three questions for you that were along those lines of what would the first question be oh. if you asked these people and I want Someone to, asked me the other day. to mention three people. May oh. I? Yeah, sure. John F. Kennedy. Well, interestingly enough, I bumped into his car when he was a senator on a morning in West Palm Beach. It was a beautiful Sunday morning and I was driving in a convertible with three other disc jockeys. I was a kid. And we were looking around at all the buildings, and I hit his car. And he got out, and uh, he said, how could, you, how could you hit me? I said, I've, I'm sorry, we were looking around. You want to change license plates? He says, no, it was a bumper. He says, I want you guys to raise your hands. He said, I'm going to run for president in two years. Promise you'll vote for me. So that was my adventure with John Kennedy. If I would interview John Kennedy... Right now, knowing what I know, why the hell did you go to Dallas? <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. I interviewed Martin Luther King. I always remember one thing he said. I said, in, in, in all of your speeches, you, know, you never talk about um, sexual morality. You know, you never talk about uh, two to one person and all this. So you don't deal in the social mores of humankind. And he says, there's some places you fear to go. Some places I don't tread to go. You know, and he was a womanizer. And But he was honest in heat, the way he said, there's some places you don't go. I never forgot that. But he also said, I said, what are you after? What is your goal, personal goal? And he said, my dignity. 
Wow. Now, now someone asked me, what would you ask God? Tricky. I would ask God, do you have a son? Because <laughs> <laughs> if he says no, we throw the whole category. Now, Lenny used to do a great bit on the Bruce. Catholic Church. Lenny was torn down by the Catholic Church, not by his cursing. Lenny was genius. Lenny would do his backstage at St. Patrick's. Cardinal Spellman, Bishop Sheen. Bishop Sheen comes running to Cardinal Spellman and says, you know who's out front? Who? Christ is out front. Guys, you're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. Look, th look through. Look through the curtain. Look up. Where is he? He's right over there on the right. Looks like Charlton Heston. <laughs> he says, you, you can't miss him. He's glowing. He's glowing. So Spellman says, what the hell do we do? He said, hide the rings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lenny was funny. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to ikilljfk.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent, and delicious certified organic, kosher, and vegan superfood blends on the planet. Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powders that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to BokuSuperfood.com. That's B-O-K-U Superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku Superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. I don't buy it at this. some heavenly father. I don't think anyone's looking at me. I believe in the poem Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, 
black as the pit from pole to pole, pole to pole, I think, whatever gods may be, for my unconquerable soul, in the fell clutch of circumstance, circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud, under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.